Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Okay, so Angus, uh, so how, yeah, tell, tell everyone a little bit about your background. How did you, how did you get here? Yeah, so I guess it's all started when I was a little kid and the first time someone showed me programming. It was actually in Boy Scouts when, uh, way back in the day, and someone showed me, hey, this is how you write a program in BASIC, which was a basic programming language everyone kind of gets first introduced to. And I just fell in love with it. And just that power of being able to, hey, I can do this automation and stuff and make it do something cool, like saying, hello, Angus. I was like, sweet, I built that. And this kind of love of it followed me through middle school, always playing with the computers in the labs, getting yelled at my teachers for breaking them. And to high school where I took my first programming class, luckily I had a professor who loved to kind of teach programming to high school kids. And I was just like, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life is work with computers. And so of course I went to uh, Georgia Tech for computer science and about halfway through the program there, I kind of realized, you know what? I don't want to stare at spreadsheets and like TPS reports all day. And at the same time, luckily Georgia Tech was kind of realizing that there was this gap between people who understood traditional computer science pretty well, but they were starting to find this missing piece where it's like a lot of video game companies, websites, and like even the film industry needed people with those skills, but also understand Dandying how to apply those skills, like in a more artistic uh, manner. Like, hey, we want you to make the button, but can you like make it a cool button that people will love and like? In my head, I'm picturing like the '90s interfaces, the Visual Basic, where everything's just the like the basic gray button. <laughs> yeah, people kind of realized, hey, design's a little important for these applications. So, um. My college started up this kind of uh, hybrid degree between the College of Computer Science and the College of Liberal Arts, where there was a lot of experimental art and like uh, visual effects, video production and stuff. And I fell in love with that. And that's where I really found to be web development and websites to be my passion because of the rapid turnaround. It was something that was being delivered to everybody quickly. And this idea of like information exchange just really kind of struck a chord with me. Um, so that really kind of, uh, drove my passion to into this industry. And then luckily from there, I was able to get a job, uh, <laughs> in 2008, right when the economy, yeah, that was the great start of the great recession. So did you, uh, you, did you get in before that hit or did you get in afterwards? Uh, this, I graduated fall of 2007, eight, God, I can totally remember this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go and check my uh, diploma. Um, <laughs> but do you, do you remember, do you, do you, is that something that you remember when you were looking for jobs that, oh, wow, I'm looking for a job in a recession? Or do you remember being in a job and then thinking, wow, thank God I have this job because this recession just hit? No, uh, it was the first one. The that- former. I didn't put two and two together because I don't think people were starting to realize the economy was tanking, or at least I wasn't mm-hmm. paying attention to it. I was like, got college degree. That means I'm going to get a job. Ha. Sure. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so I went through a lot of like applying to a lot of places and the, for a junior developer, the market was kind of drop drying up in Atlanta. So mm-hmm. I was like, crud, let's see if I can find anything, everything. Luckily, actually what got me my first job was a friend of mine who had also graduated from Georgia Tech. He just happened to know someone out in LA that they were like, hey, we need someone to kind of help us build and maintain our website. Do you know anybody? And they were like, yeah, check out my friend Angus. And then lo and behold, I now have been in LA for eight, 12 years. All right. Over a decade. Yeah. Math. Math. (laughs) It's my strong suit. (laughs) Hey, we have computers to do that for us. That's half the reason I went into it. It's like, I'm bad at this math. I'm going to make something do the math for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so then you were off to the races. So so now you're at a, you're, the company that you're at now is Rex. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about real estate. Um, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about uh, what 
led you to Rex? Like, so how did you hear about Rex? What was the interview process like? Just just take us back to what that process was like for you. Okay. Yeah, so um, I had just uh, think about how to start this. Yeah. So when I was applying around at the time, I was at a startup. It was about a medium sized startup. I think 100 employees total, maybe a little bit more. And this was my first startup job. And I loved startups. Um, before that, I had previously been at a TV studios shop where it was kind of like, hey, here's all the graphics, just make it the website look like that. Then another job was like a digital agency, which is the same thing where you don't have much agency over what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And basically, you're just being doing what you're told. So the startup life, I really loved. And this was a mid-sized company, but you know, not all companies survive. And so I was like, all right, I got to start looking for the next gig. And so this company, you could tell that this company wasn't going to last or, or it had shut down. Uh, I could tell that the company wasn't going to last or well, it was, yeah, I want to say, yeah, I could tell that the company wasn't going to last for much longer. It was kind of written on the wall. So I was like, mm -hmm. I'd rather okay. find a job now rather than be caught off. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is one of those interesting things where it is much easier to find a job when you have one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot easier to explain, oh, you know, I'm looking for a change rather than I'm desperate for a job. Please pay me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Okay. So what happened next? So um, actually, uh, normally I don't do this, but I have a friend who was a recruiter and they kind of like as one of the possible jobs, they're like, oh, you should check out this company, Rex. Well, I was like, all right. They're a small uh, startup. They are kind of only been around for a year, only a few engineers. And like they're looking to bring on a full stack person to kind of help build out, you know, their uh, web presence. Because most of them were more back end engineers familiar with Java and microservices and building that stuff out. So they were like, all right, we need someone who's a little expert in this. And I was like, all right, well, that kind of sounds up my alley. But it's also really cool that I'd be the first one to kind of establish you know, all the patterns and kind of build almost from scratch. Like that's almost a rare opportunity in the startup world. Like normally you kind of, by the time you hear about them, they're already kind of gotten the ground going and moving. And so you're kind of coming in there just to add more recruits and help. Totally. Um, so just, you're was, living with someone else's mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> eh, well, eh, we'll get into that. Um <laughs> So it was a really interesting concept. Plus, um, I had friends who worked at previous uh, real estate-based startups. And that's an area kind of ripe for, I hate the term, disruption. <laughs> but yeah, it was I saw, one of those I saw that word coming. Yeah, yeah. Everybody uses it. but Well, at the time, I don't think they were. We're <laughs> Remember, we're in the past. So yeah, it's still oh, yeah. a cool word to use. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was like, I knew a little bit about the real industry real estate industry. Basically, my friends told me, hey, even if you're not number one, there's a good chance you're going to make money. So that's always a great thing with looking at a company is like, are they going to be able to pay me? You know, one of my one small like requirement for a job for me. Yeah, I think I think that that is something I'm not sure how much it gets talked about. Right. But if you look at the company, what are they selling? What is the market that they're in? Mm -hmm. What what is that exchange of value? And so this is something to pay attention to if the company that, that you're looking at really just, I don't know, is like a fun content website, right? Because if that's the case, then they really have to have a big audience to the point that they are able to sell advertising, right? And that's very different than a market like real estate that has uh, a huge, huge scale. The The amount of money that's that's trading hands constantly is absolutely massive. And if your company provides value in that exchange and is, is either taking a percentage or just a sizable absolute value, uh, that's just a really good place to be. And you can bet that your company will be able to uh, survive and thrive. Whereas other companies that, that aren't really dealing in, in a large market or exchanging value, it's going to be much, much tougher. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the 
this was the first time I was really kind of looking at those uh, points was because as I was saying, I was at a startup company and I could kind of see that the company wasn't going to survive for more than a year. And that's what made me go, I really need to evaluate the long-term like financials of the company, not whether can they pay me and how much they're going to pay me. It's like, how long is this company going to last? And uh, that was an important lesson. And so I made sure to kind of like evaluate that piece when um, looking at new job opportunities. Um, So yeah, I kind of went in and interviewed with them. I will say this, they were located in Woodland. Actually, no, it was Westlake Village at the time. Yeah, further west. And I was living in essentially Venice. And I was like, 45 minute commute up the 101 and the 405. Hmm. So it wasn't the most like opportunistic commute. Um, but it was looking at the company and really the opportunity to, like I was saying, build from the ground up. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take the risk, the like business value of the company. There's something there. Like, even if you're not first place, there's definitely enough room for second place to the, uh, this is a rare opportunity for me to grow personal skills that I'm not going to get too much of a chance of that often. Mm-hmm. So for those, I was like, you know what? That is worth at least a year of my career to try out and see what happens. Lo and behold, I've been there for over three years now. So All it kind of right. worked out. Yeah, they're doing something right. So <laughs> what was the yeah, what was the interview process like? Um, so at the time, uh this we they didn't have a great interview process. So it was kind of interesting. Um The first interview was a phone call where I was just chatting with the then CTO and we kind of just kind of got a feel for each other. I was like, yeah, okay, this sounds interesting. Um, And then after that, I did an onsite interview, which was interesting because part of the team was remote. Part of the team, a lot of the team was in that office. So it was, I'm trying to think back. It's been a while. And so I kind of came into this small, like little startup office, which was about the size of my current apartment, which is about 700 square feet, Ooh, but about yeah. 20 people stuffed in there in a right. bunch of engineers in even a smaller room in the back. And I'm like, okay, this is a little different. This is going from a medium sized startup to a very small startup. Yeah. Take that in. Um, but there's something to that where you realize it's like, oh, this is the ground floor. This is literally mm-hmm. the ground floor with the ground floor stain on the carpet. <laughs> um, and because it wasn't such a formal interview process, it was me kind of talking to a few of the team members. They pitch some smaller uh, JavaScript questions or CSS questions. Now, let's put this in context. This is a bunch of Java backend AWS DevOps engineers trying to ask questions about the front end. And you can kind of pick up real quickly. It's like, yeah, these people really don't understand what they're Yeah. And they didn't even have TypeScript then to (laughs) make themselves feel better. Yeah. Well, uh, the tech stack was an interesting choice. This was 2017, 18, 16, really, really hitting the math. Great. Yeah. Um, So they were still on Angular JS 1.5, which was. Yeah. I think there was like a lot of overlap between Java people and Angular 1 people Mm -hmm. at that time. Well, that was their sales pitch of why they pitched, uh, chose Angular JS. It was so similar in the f- Java philosophies that that's why they were like, okay, yeah, we can do front end. It kind of follows the same thing. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't quite work like that. Uh, some of the pain points I had to first deal with when coming in. Um, so yeah, the interview process was a lot of me just chatting with the team and getting to know their process and them getting to know my process. It was very kind of loosey-goosey. And then eventually I did meet with the CEO and we talked more about the business and how the business works and everything. And, um, you know, lo and behold, I was like, the CEO convinced me like, all right, he knows his business. He knows his market. He really knows where is it, where it's going. The tech side, I think there's a lot of improvement there and a lot of changes that I could add to it. It's not perfect yet, but that's the thing about a startup. You're kind of like, it's not perfect. You got to figure it out as you go. But the business idea is solid. So I was like, all right, I'm sold on this. I think this right. is a great value. Yeah, that's an important point too. If there isn't a business to provide value to with 
your software engineering, what's the what's the point? Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's really important to have that foundation that there there really is that that business case that there is an effective CEO leader who knows how to find the customer, figure out what they want, deliver value, and mm-hmm. if your software can help that happen and act as a force multiplier, that's that's a huge win. And not every company is going to be selling a 100% tech product. Uh, there certainly are cases uh, like that, right? I mean, if you think of developer tools or mm-hmm. working on a database itself, uh, possibly, you know, things like, I mean, Google is now so multifaceted now, but you know, even even something like original Google search or something like that is particularly tech heavy. But mm-hmm. I think now in the world that we live in, where software software has eaten the world, it's rare to find a business that isn't affected by software in some ways. And a lot of the great places to work are going to be not 100% tech plays, but just have a good amount of tech to make everything better. Mm-hmm. And that's actually an interesting point. I don't think at the time the startup had decided if they were a hundred percent a tech product company, meaning selling it tech, or were they a product company selling a product that they're just using tech to enable that? And mm-hmm. I think that's something all startups uh, try to figure out at some stage and stuff. Like, hey, do we fully go into like, hey, we're a tech company that's tech based? And selling the tech, or are we a company that like we're really focusing on the product? And uh, Rex has kind of like done the idea of no, we are a tech company, and under the hood, we are selling the tech. The tech enables you to better or easierly—that's a word—more <laughs> easily sell and buy your home and additional services around that. Um, Got it. That's, yeah. Why don't you why don't you say a little bit about what Rex does? Yeah, that's probably the best. Um, so it takes uh, a little bit of understanding of the current real estate market in the United States. Um, it's traditionally built around a proprietary uh, model of the MLS, multiple listing service, where any person can you know get certified in their state and they become a listing agent, either on the buyer or seller side. And the way it works is that if you sign up with the multiple listing services, you are contractually obligated to pay the listing agent at least, I want to say, a certain percentage. And then that agent then splits their commission from selling your home with a the buyer side, traditionally. Uh, the numbers can flex, I think. So the problem was, is we were looking at this, and more importantly, my CEO, he had this house that he had, and he was like, oh, I want to sell it. Well, a friend down the road was actually like, actually, I'd love to buy your house. So he pretty much didn't have to market it. He didn't have to do pretty do anything. And he didn't need an agent to do anything. And he just needed them to sign the paperwork. Literally, what, an hour's worth? But the agent was like, no, nah, I need 3% of your million dollar home as my commission. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so if you look into the industry and everything, we're like, this is like an old system that hasn't been updated at all. And that's where Rex comes in. We were like, you know what? We're going to use the internet because it's easy to put ads on the internet. You don't have to pay these exorbitant prices. You just pay for the clicks. Two, we can use ad tech like AI, machine learning to better target an audience. Like an agent kind of takes their home and puts it like on their wall and puts it on the MLS and shares it with other agents. And it's kind of like guesswork of like, well, hey, what do you think about this house? What do you think about this house? We're going, all right, you've got a two-bedroom home. You're not really going to be selling to, you know, newly married couples. You're going to be looking at like uh, couples with like a kid or maybe a work-at-home dad and kind of really taking the data analysis and figure out, all right, these are the people we need to market to. And we're going to market not only in your hometown, we're going to be like, you know what? There's somebody in Georgia that's looking to move mm-hmm. to Los Angeles. They've been searching around so we can start ad targeting them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's where we're starting at. And then we're kind of expanding into the other services of like, oh, you, we know your banking information. We know like what your current home is worth. 
let's take this and let's kind of see if we can automate the whole escrow, the whole home loans process and such. Uh, that's my quick little pitch. But. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, so what this shows you is that one from the beginning of that, the the story of the agent who wanted 3% for doing effectively nothing, 3% of a million dollars for doing effectively nothing. Mm-hmm. I think that shows a disconnect in the market or uh, room for really optimizing out a middleman that's not providing very much value. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, yeah, you were just talking about there are again, all of these processes that may not be expensive in a direct wealth transfer to a middleman, but they wind up being really complicated manual processes that nobody enjoys. And that is a good room for software to automate or make those things smoother and easier. So I, yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, from your perspective, looking at that company, um, certainly a good, good place in the in the market scheme mm. of things in the, in the solid business side. Yeah. That's the big thing in like, really it does come down to the idea of like, in, if I could put it in simple terms, we want to make buying and selling a home just as easy as buying that carton of toilet paper on Amazon. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Click, click, Which click is bomb. less, less easy now than it used to be. <laughs> but yeah. Um, cool. So Obviously, you're a very accomplished software engineer. Uh, tell us about a typical day. Um, it kind of so a typical day <laughs> is interesting. Um, normally, most of my days are centered around my daily standup. Basically, uh, for me, it's in the afternoon that because we have a distributed team and that kind of works with our schedules. And it's uh, pretty much up until that, and then after, it's very ad hoc of. Either I'm focusing on working on problems, I'm interviewing people for to help grow the team, or you know uh, I'm in a meeting discussing and kind of connecting with the uh, stakeholders and just figuring out the day to day problems for each of my you know tasks. Them, um, you know DSU. It's a standard DSU where we uh, go over what's going on for the day, what's going to go on the next day. And, you know, helping out. I'm sure we have some listeners who aren't familiar with DSU. So mind getting into that a bit? Sure. So um, DSU stands for daily standup. It comes from the concept of agile development or scrum development, even though I don't think I've ever met a company that follows either of those at those philosophies to the letter. Um, We use the term agile just to be like, hey, we think weekly, we deliver weekly. Well, we approach. You're not waterfall. Yeah. Not waterfall, God. I will never do that. Um, <laughs> it's funny, as I think some people like that. So waterfall, of course, is uh, what agile I think was reacting to. So mm-hmm. waterfall is there are all of these steps that one has to happen one after the other, and so waterfall it's sort of described as maybe a staircase, and that's the it's not just one big waterfall. It's it's like steps. And so first you got to do the requirements gathering and then you do design and then you do development and then you do testing. And then I forget all the typical steps, but they don't overlap. So if in the beginning requirements gets messed up and then you find that out in development, often the tendency is, nope, we're just going to roll with it and we're not going back or you got to start the whole thing over. It's, it's the opposite of iterative. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, and you're right. Agile was kind of looking at that going, hey, we've gotten burned by this. And I think one of the biggest complaints about waterfall development was all of your planning was in that first stage. And you were like, all right, we're going to ship by this date. And then you point out, oh, we discovered something in the development phase that's going to slow this project down. And we're going to have to fix it and rethink things. Well, now your development time took a lot longer. So that means it's going to... that is going to take eat up your QA time in your delivery date. In my experience, doesn't get moved too much to adjust for that. And I think a lot of people get burnt by that. And probably the biggest uh, problem with that is what you planned for at the beginning may not be what you needed at the end. Like uh, there's definitely definitely a lot of things that happen in the middle that influence what what you want. want, Mm -hmm. Right. The idea that you know exactly what you want before you start working on it is an attractive one. And it's easy to see why people think that that's the case. But 
I think anyone with experience realizes that as you learn more and more while you're building, that that's all knowledge that you it can be useful in mm-hmm. in the requirements. Yeah, and then there's always the fact that if you're at a startup and suddenly the business realizes, hey, uh, selling like outdoor activity stuff right now <laughs> doesn't Good really work. We need to rethink our business plan. You know, right? Yeah. No, that's uh, that. Yeah, that, that's another big one. Uh, market market forces change all the time, and mm-hmm. so something that that would have had strong demand all of a sudden could have zero demand, or something new would pop up and that becomes really important and there's a, a short window. And so being able to respond quickly is important. Mm-hmm. Okay. So daily standups, super important. Tell us more. Um, yes. So daily standups, it's, yeah, it's this agile philosophy of you kind of un- understand where you're at and what you're working on currently and kind of go, Hey, this is what I need help with. This is what I'm going to get done. And I know, and it's a good way for the team to, on a daily basis, react to changes or react to the needs of others and help each other out. Um, That's why I'm a huge fan of Agile and DSU is I think it helps uh, the developers just kind of adjust instead of you're on this rail track and I need to do this feature this way, hell, heck or hell water. Mm -hmm. Let me try that again. Hell or high water. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Just, uh, keep, keep going. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, so what, uh, yeah. So what are you working on right now? Can you get a little concrete? Sure. So, um, probably the one project I'd love to talk about is, um, earlier I mentioned when I came to Rex, we were on, uh, an angular JS stack, which at, even at that time was a little outdated by, I think a year or so. And it was written by a bunch of backend engineers um, who didn't understand how the web and JavaScript worked. Um, so there are a lot of flaws in it. I think one of the most favorite features I found of that, uh, framework that they kind of hobbled together was if you put a fifth drop down on a page, the page would crash. I was like, (laughs) how did you do this? That's kind of impressive. Actually. Yeah, actually, that's why I love telling that story. I'm like, okay, something to do with like how they made a custom drop down, but it ended up creating uh, an incredible like non an infinite render cycle where just sure. constantly re-render so, so yeah interesting it was number that that like the fifth one was the one that you that did it right like four <laughs> is fine but five that's that's the that's the cutoff i wonder if the, i wonder if if uh the number of four or the number of drop downs winds up being the exponent of some sort of uh <laughs> Um, yeah, some sort of operation. And so the difference between whatever mm-hmm. it is to the fourth and the difference, you know, to the fifth is, is what well, takes out all the memory. <laughs> it's been a while since I've hint- touched Angular JS or really gotten into it, but I think you're right. What it is, is like, it re-renders everything, unlike React and stuff, which kind of goes, oh, I only need to change this piece. So it's like, oh, this dropdown needs to re-render. So let me re-render everything. Oh, in this dropdown, so it'd be, yeah, as you're correct. It's like interesting. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. So the with all of this fun enjoyment, um, we were kind of like, our page is slow. Our development time is slow because we're finding all these fun little bugs. We need to start moving to a much smarter uh, or more modern framework. And we need to move in that direction. So being like one of the UI engineers, I was like, I've played with React before. I kind of know how to use that. Let's go with React. We at least have some exposure to that. And pretty much over time, we've replaced about, I'd say, 95% of our customer-facing website with a full server-side render React application. And so my current project is, it's a little on the back burner, but it's replacing that one last page. and. Um, it's kind of going back to this idea of like me, the reason I joined this company was to kind of like start from the ground up, really provide huge value to it and kind of help architects and stuff. So this is kind of like the last final step in me completing that and said, I did this. Um, so for me, it's a big project, but what it is, is, um, it's our form for submitting a, um, offer for a listing and, 
not that flashy, not that great, but to me, it's of significance value from an, like an overall uh, brain brain fart. <laughs> to me, it's a it's like significant in that it's the final milestone in this big part of my career. Um, and so are you gonna you gonna retire after this one's done? <laughs> gonna hang up, hang up the old keyboard. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe at a young <laughs> ripe age with thirty six. <laughs> Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, let's just say the economy is not going to allow that to happen. Yeah, Angus's magnum opus. I like the sound of that. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, uh, no. The idea is like, all right, we replace the old code. Now let's make the no new code that much better. Because you know, um, even in this process, it's not perfect by far. Um, we it was an iterative step over time. It's like, all right, are these marketing landers for the are different like states and cities. Do we really need to do these in the same Angular JS application, or can we spin them up as like static pages that we render in React and then just upload to the server? So we started with that. Then we got to pages where we're like, oh, well, we need to re-render these or rebuild them every change that's done in our administrative tool. And we're like, uh, that. If we try to do, say, a Jamstack approach, that's pretty much going to kill our build server for all the mm-hmm. different changes for all the different listings. So we're like, all right, go from Jamstack. We're going to build a server-side rendered React application that includes all of it. And like, so we quickly spun that our own. For some reason, we decided to roll our own instead of like using a framework for Next, just because at the time we we're like, mm, do we want to try to learn Next or do we want to just take our code that works in the Jamstack and just put it in a node application. Do you regret that decision? Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, but at the time, I think it was a good decision. And this is what I'm saying is, even though I'm getting it all into React, there's still a lot of stuff we got to change now. I have since learned now that we should have kept the pages separate if we could have. We could have like used Next or something and learned. But these are things you learn from failing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, do I wish I had stuck with Next? Yes. Do I regret that decision at the time? No. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something I've kind of learned to uh, cope with. I guess cope is the right word. Sure. I mean, with this, with this, the learnings from this, would, would that be applicable for a future decision? Because it's interesting to me that you say that, that it almost sounds like if you could go back in time and change, change it, you would. But it also sounds like there wasn't enough information at the time to have correctly predicted that next would have been better. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I, diving into the decision, it was I tend to prefer very lightweight frameworks. Like one of the things that bit me about Angular JS and when we tried to swap over to it was you have to buy into their whole ecosystem. You have to do it their way. So. It, I just find that so limiting because say, oh, we kind of would do this new innovative tricky thing. Well, Angular isn't built to do that. So we're kind of stuck in this weird hacky situation where if you look at React, React is not a framework. It is a library and it is just for rendering. You can put stuff on top of it like state management, like Redux, React Router, and all those things to kind of you know, add more to it and you kind of like shuffling and building your own framework of your own choice. So when I was Man, looking you at just na- you just named two things that when you add them to React, React is never coming out of that project. <laughs> that it just those two lay down such thick roots that yeah, you're just you're never gonna be able to pull React out. But I agree, without those, React is it's actually able to mm-hmm. to be extracted depending on how 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 what node it's at and how root of a node that that is. Sorry, continue. Yeah. (laughs) Things you learn later. (laughs) You have to make these mistakes before, (laughs) you know, you learn. It's kind of like, how did you learn that the stove was hot? You had to touch the stove. Yeah. Your parents warned you, but you weren't going to learn it until you did it yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you got to learn from mistakes. Now, I, I like to learn from other people's mistakes, but I feel like the lesson is just much more powerful when when it's it's your hand on the hot stove. Like, I bet if you talk to all the experts in the field, 
all of them would have scars on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. If software development was like wood shop, there'd be a lot of missing fingers, I think. <laughs> it just start going up the arm. You'd be like, <laughs> you would think, you would think we'd learn maybe use something else to touch the blades. Oh man. Yeah. It's just fine. It's like, what happened to your finger? It's like, well, we should have used next, <laughs> but, and yeah. So looking at next, we, I was kind of like, Oh, the router's built in. You have to follow their little bit of structure. This is a few years ago. So I could be misspoken right about now. And so I was kind of like, ah, I want flexibility. I don't know where this, uh, where we're going to go with the whole structure of our, or I don't know where we're going to go with the architecture of the front end yet. We're still kind of figuring this out as we go. So flexibility was one of the biggest things. Um, so that's why uh, we kind of rolled our own stuff. But yes, um, I'm kind of, once this piece is done, I'm kind of looking back at what we've got now and I'm like, all right, how can we improve it from what we've got? Do we use next? Do we use this mythical remix framework that's coming out that no one knows too much about, um, except that it uses React Router and a few other nice little new features from React, I think? Um, or do we go with, like, say, maybe a, more of a microservices jam stack, and then we have to figure out how we're going to make all of those pages live on the same domain, but in different applications. Yeah, you're gonna shift the you're gonna shift the complexity to operations mm-hmm. and DevOps. So it's um these are the things I'm kind of thinking about now once this project is done. And which actually you just remind me, the whole Webpack five federation announcement. That's something I'm really excited about. about yeah. And maybe that's kind of the direction we want to go. But I got to learn that lesson the hard way, too. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, awesome. So, okay. So at Rex, uh, I'm a little bit curious about you know, what are the the values? You mentioned flexibility was really important to you. Um, yeah. How do you how do you think about things like team efficiency and what what where do you put the emphasis on doing things right versus doing things right now? Mm-hmm. What do you, yeah, what do you, what are the values? Move fast and break things. So, yeah. Uh, so to give you a little context, um, we got a new CTO a few years back. He was a former uh, Facebook employee, like one of the earlier ones, Andy Barquette. And he kind of brought a lot of Facebook's values of move fast, break things, be super agile. And one of the core things that we kind of lean into is that move fast, break things, be highly agile. What that means, though, for the engineer is we kind of focus on you. We don't like people being an expert in one area and never touching or learning about the other areas. So that means even though I'm kind of an expert in what people call the front end UI area, I still like work on the back end and I've been learning Python at this job and writing, writing Python services. So one of our big things is we want a generalist, um, full stack engineers that we can be highly flexible and redistribute to where the need is. So like, you know, if there's a big project going on and a lot of our back end resources are sucked up on that, I have the flexibility to go in and be like, well, I just need an additional API endpoint that's just a simple CRUD operation. Let me code it out. I just unblocked my own development and now I can move on. So that's one of our core philosophies. And to follow that is we, even though we are kind of using mostly React in the front end and we've been mostly using Python in the back end, that doesn't mean that that's always going to be the languages and frameworks of our choice. We really like to use the right tool for the right job. And that means constant reevaluation. Um, and one of the things like I found to kind of help with that evaluation of figuring out what the right tool is and like how do we get, you know, do things the fast way versus the right way, even though both are kind of right, is uh this chart that's been brought up to me um like a few times. It's the cost versus impact which is, you know, your impact is your y-axis up and down, cost, you know, your x-axis. And so you kind of divide up your uh, projects or features into like these four quadrants of high impact, high cost, low impact, high cost, um, low impact, low cost, et cetera. And 
you want to aim for things that are like low cost, high impact. Those are the things like, yes, do that immediately. We can see that. Like, you know, hey, it only takes me a day to get this one feet like hack in and it's going to get us a bunch of leads from our customers. Let's do that. That like, that's going to get us money. That's money's going to go into my salary. <laughs> Back to the whole, <laughs> you have to be aware of the business and the business side of things to kind of help figure out what decisions you do as an engineer. Right. Um, and order matters. So I, I think the way that I'd frame what you just said is if you're deciding between, between two features and one will bring in money, do that one first because that money can pay for the second feature. Exactly. That's a really good way to put it. Um, so that's kind of how we, I approach things and evaluate them and kind of the team is we look for those high impact, low costs. The next thing is like, if we look at something, we're like, well, this change is high impact, but it has high cost. We kind of like, all right, let's think about and research this uh, a little bit more and kind of get an understanding of how we could apply it. And is there something we can do in the meantime that gets maybe us a third of the way there? Yeah, that's a huge one, right? Because oftentimes when you see that high impact, high cost feature, if you break it down, there are a lot of different parts of it that sum up to that high impact. Mm -hmm. And they're not those sub features are going to have different costs. And even those sub features may be higher impact, lower cost or you know, lower impact, higher cost. And if you are able to draw that box around the the better ones, sometimes that's possible. Yeah. And that's been a lot of my like learnings on with this job and this company is like having more being the person in charge of how we build things out. You really learn to be like, all right, how do I evaluate this? Can I get this done in today? No. Okay. How long is it going to take me? more than three days, maybe I should research and break this down a little bit more because totally. if I don't get this out, it's going to affect the company, my customers, and things aren't going to go well. Uh, yeah. I don't want to do that again. Yeah, that's interesting. So when when working with people on your team, are they also uh, thinking about the prioritization that way? Or is that more like, is that is that something that every senior engineer or is that something that mid-level engineers are expected to do? Uh, so we're still only like a 40 person team, but I think that's something that we try to instill in every engineer. Um, one of the things is because we love generalists, because we love like people who learn different areas, this is something like we try to even instill on our younger junior engineers because, Hey, we want you to grow with us. We want you to learn with us. And this is something like that's very important because if we can make people highly adaptive and agile, I keep using that term, um, that's a key skill. So if we can quickly assume, assemble like a strike team of whoever's like free, if it's junior engineers, if it's senior engineers, if it's mid-level engineers, all of them need that skill set to kind of self-manage the project or whatever they need to do. And that's highly important for us. So that's something I struggled with a little before being at Rex, um, understanding that, you know, a uh, toss up that give and take between the two. Um, <clears throat> and that's something I actually learned from the senior engineers that had former Facebook, uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It, I, so when you're, when you're hiring, so actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you look for when you're hiring and also, I guess, specifically, I'm curious if that's something that you look for that, that more, I don't know, senior, higher level mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, we kind of adapt the engineer to the person. Like if we see someone who has, Hey, you only have a year experience. We don't necessarily look for, Oh, do they already have these skills? Do they already have that ability to make that judgment call? Uh, we instead focus on, all right, can they learn? Do they have the basics in there? Can I work with this person to solve a problem? Um, that's for more of our junior people. Of course, for our senior people, uh, yes. We'd be like, can they break down a problem? Can they understand like that? If I give you a problem face value, are you going to ask the right questions to understand the need behind the problem? And that's something I kind of look for for more uh, senior people is like, 
All right. To give an example, like um, at Rex, we've had this debate, you know, the marketing people want to get stuff up and fast and, you know, get it in a position to where it's like, we're going to get leads immediately. And so um, at one point they're like, they came to us, Hey, it takes the developers a little, like a few days or longer to kind of put up this, you know, brand new page and everything that, that we requested. Can you just give us a WordPress instance and that way we can put WordPress together? Well, why do you think WordPress is the solution? Well, that way we can quickly change the copy and like get this form up and we can quickly, you know, put it out in a day. We're like, hmm. But the problem is, is then you won't be able to use our custom forms and all of our analytics tracking without like additional engineering costs. So you're not really, WordPress isn't solving the problem. And that's the thing yeah, I look for an engineer. Maybe it's, it's one step forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. Is do you look at the problem and understand what the, what the ask is, what the um, root problem is for that person, not just what they're asking for. Um, and so that's led to us kind of doing this little spike or investigation on, Hey, can we create our own CMS or buy a CMS off the shelf that we can use with our own, uh, library system or within our own application instead of having to use a third. Um, yeah. So WordPress, of course, everyone's heard of it runs like a gigantic mm-hmm. portion of the internet, insanely mature, huge surface area, does everything. And, you know, it's very unlikely that the, whatever department that is, wants everything that comes along with WordPress. Mm-hmm. And so if it is possible that you can give them 90% of what they want or what they're thinking they need from WordPress with 10% of the operational complexity, then that's a huge win. Yeah. And yeah, once again, it's that high impact, low cost little area that you want. Whereas implementing a whole new WordPress site, high cost, (laughs) like low impact. We're like, "Uh, (laughs) can can we do this instead and not drive our engineers insane with PHP? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting too, right? Because how that cost the the accounting of that cost can be done in very different ways. And I think depending on the person, they may not wrap their wrap their head around all of the different ways that it is expensive, right? They may only just think time to implementation. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we agree to doing WordPress, well, we could just set up, I don't know, geez, this is a world I'm not familiar with, but like mm-hmm. WP Engine, we could just be have a hosted one off to the races and just have it up by tomorrow. I've used WordPress before, so I know I can have uh, a landing page and all of this set up by tomorrow. So there's nothing that engineer can do, engineering, the department can do faster than that. So mm. therefore, any other solution is going to be more expensive. And it's like, well, no. And you kind of mentioned some of those two, you know, these these reason reasons is, okay, fine. You set this up tomorrow. And now you have no analytics. So any reporting that you're, you've been looking at and you expect to show this, you're going to get this set up. And all of a sudden in your reports, all of that data is going to be missing. And guess what? You're going to have to launch a new engineering project that is going to have to interface with uh, WordPress, like you say, PHP, mm-hmm. something that the engineering, not, engineering team is not familiar with. And lo and behold, you've just kicked off a month long or longer project because you in theory saved a week or whatever it is. It's interesting. I I I always talk about the difference between a junior engineer, a mid-level engineer and a senior engineer. I'm sure you've heard this mm-hmm. before, which is, you know, you go to a junior engineer and you say, "Hey, I really need a chainsaw. Can you build me a chainsaw?" Junior engineer says, "Oh man, I've always wanted to build a chainsaw. Yes, I can totally figure this out." And before you say another word, they just puff it like puff of smoke, and they're gone, and they're like getting lost down a million rabbit holes, figuring out how to build the best, coolest mm-hmm. chainsaw ever. Mid-level engineer, it's, uh, it goes something like, "Hey, need a chainsaw? Can you build me a chainsaw?" Mid-level says, "Yeah, I've built a hundred before. No big deal. I'll have it in a week." totally solid, can do what you want. Of course, the senior engineer, hey, I need you to build me a chainsaw. I really need this. Uh, Can you build me a chainsaw? Senior engineer says, why do you need a chainsaw? And you respond, because I locked my keys in my apartment. 
the senior engineer <laughs> obviously never builds the, builds the chainsaw and instead calls a locksmith and everything gets resolved with way fewer piles of sawdust. And I think, I think that's mm-hmm. pretty apt with what you're talking about here. I can completely imagine someone talking to this department, hearing them say, hey, we need WordPress, and them thinking, awesome, my success in this department is determined by how quickly I can get them what they want and not really doing the later accounting of what what will happen if they if they do this down down the line. And but like that factors very much into our interview process. Like a lot of our interviews are centered around live coding. And one of the earliest signals I get on whether an interview is going to go well or not is I give them a problem and if they just kind of start coding instead of asking me questions or th- thinking through how to solve the problem first, that's usually like a key indicator of whether this is going to go really well or really badly. Um, In general, I like ask questions. There's nothing wrong with that. You do not have to code quickly. In fact, I've had some people who like only answered one of our questions in the entire 45 minutes, but they did pretty good because they were asking questions. They were talking to me and they were thinking through the problem in all of its outliers and they were communicating that. Uh, And that's really interesting, right? Because when you're interviewing someone, the whole purpose is to figure out what it's like to work with that person. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think it's possible that some people out there don't, don't realize this, but if you actually were working with someone and you you bring up a problem and they just immediately disappear and start writing code and create a pull request, like that would actually be kind of awkward. I mean, in some ways it's sort of cool, right? Like heavy bias towards action. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's this other part where it's like, wait, we didn't talk about this at all. Like there's no <laughs> chance that what you are about to submit in this pull request <laughs> accurately captures the reality of the situation. And I'm going to feel real bad when you just spent all of this work and you missed something very basic, foundational, and none of this really applies. So I think that's interesting, right? In the sense that, okay, in an interview process, if you are treating it like a model of what real work is like, mm-hmm. and someone just immediately starts working without trying to talk about it with you, I agree. That's that's not the best sign. Yeah. Like, I've even had junior people, which they, it was very obvious. They did not know how to solve the problem I gave them, but it turned out to be a great interview because like they got to a point where they're like, I'm stuck. I'm like, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, it's a junior engineer. They're not always going to be able to solve the problem. I'm now turning this into a situation where it's like, this is now like I would be at work where I'm like, I have to help you. Let's see how that whole process is going to be like. It's almost one-to-one, and those have been some of the better interviews I've actually had. That's awesome. This is going to make me sound like a sociopath, but if you are hiring someone to to solve problems, right, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, it's almost like they are a program or they are a machine. And so if they are not good at explaining their thought process, it's almost like they're, they're closed source. Mm-hmm. Like you, it's like you have this program that is designed to program or this program that is useful for solving problems. And if it is a closed box and glued shut and is doing the wrong thing, that is way less useful than if it is open source Mm -hmm. and you can just unscrew the top and see, oh, okay, this is why it's sensing this when it should sense that and it's going down the wrong decision tree. Fine. I can, Mm -hmm. I can just flip that bit and, now we're good. Yeah, it, you make a good point. It's the actual coding part of my job and of our industry, I feel is the easy part. It's more of the problem solving with a team and communication with that team is much more important and impactful. And yeah, that's the thing that I look for in interviews. It's like, how am I going to work with you? How do you communicate with me? How do we solve this problem together? Yes, you're driving it most of the solving, but yeah, I'm here to work with you. Yeah, totally. It's like, okay, let's look at the map. <laughs> let's both agree on the destination. Mm-hmm. Maybe agree a little bit on the the route that's going to be taken. And then fine, 
you do all the driving, you decide exactly how you want to do that. There's a lot of skill and uh, talent that goes into that. But, you know, something should be decided uh, up front. Okay, cool. So let's say that you were starting out right now. You just graduated from boot camp. Obviously, this is a really interesting environment. What what would you do? Knowing knowing everything that you know now, what would you what would you do if if uh, you wound up back in time? Well, yeah, <laughs> you understand the question. <laughs> yeah, I think I, you know if I was younger. Um, yeah, it's that's an interesting question. Kind of thinking if I knew what I know now back then. Okay, so so let me let me let me ask it again. So yeah. I, I think I can do a better job. Okay. Let's say that you were starting out right now. So you just graduated from a boot camp. What would you do? Now, the the skills that you have in this hypothetical situation are the skills that a new boot camp coding school grad would have. However, you also have access to Angus's understanding of how companies work and how interviews work and how to formulate a career so Hmm. with those that combination what would you do Hmm. probably the one of the first questions i'd probably ask myself is all right what are the skills that i excel at what are the skills that i'm lacking at um because even like when i did graduate college there's just a lot of stuff you don't learn from the academic side there's this practical side that you know i was i'm not an expert at JavaScript. And that's one of the things that probably I'd first figure out is how can I become the next level? And like, honestly, to do that is you have to interview a lot just to figure out where am I missing? Like, I know interviews are stressful and on both sides, like it is a stressful situation. You kind of freak out about it. You have to go in. It's like, Every interview is a learning process. Either I learned I got the job, great, or I learned what I'm missing and I need to work on. And once I know that, if I didn't get the job this time, I'm going to go and figure out where can I learn this skill. And some of the best resources I found for that was JSLA, going to have to promote that. (laughs) But to be honest, like, even uh, in, that was one of the biggest boons for my career was getting exposure to other senior developers. And even though I didn't know a lot, just being in the room and learning from them, like the things that they mention offhandedly, I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I need to go figure that out. And I would go find a book on it and start reading as much as I could. And then I'd start applying it to the role or job or whatever I'm working on at the time. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest things in, you know, finding a mentor or somebody who's going to take the time to work with me on these skills is the other big thing though. Like those are the first things that I would think about doing is like, all right, I'm a junior developer. I know I'm lacking skills. I know I need to improve to land that first job. How can I do this? Where can I learn that what I need to learn and how can I learn those skills? Yeah, the the knowing what you don't know is really important. Now, certainly acquiring those skills, the the taking what you know you don't know and turning it into things that you know that you do know, um, that's certainly an important step. But I think what you're talking about is probably you know in a way more important, right? If you are if you just graduated from a code school, you just got a whole lot of knowledge that is now in the you know you know territory mm-hmm. um well, what you're going to be missing and honestly i think this is something that that we really try and do uh, with this podcast is to share what it is like uh actually working on production systems in a professional day-to-day what the real craft of software development is like and it doesn't it doesn't have to just be this podcast. Obviously, there's there's lots of ways of getting that. You mentioned going to JSLA. So hearing the speakers talk about their projects and just hearing the different terms that they use, how they talk about things. 
a lot of the way that they think about problems and how they approached it is also useful. A lot of these things that you 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 place yourself in proximity to, you're going to be able to pick it up by osmosis. It's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way that you talk. And that's really going to come through on interviews. And concretely, there are going to be specific technologies that people mention or particular programming paradigms or techniques that you can, if you're interested, you can look up and practice with. You can use them in your own projects or just read about them and and learn more. And that that will also be important. And of course, you mentioned mentorship. I think that is probably one of the biggest things that you can do. If you can find a mentor that alone can change the trajectory of your career by a huge amount. Um, you know, the metaphor that, that you can use is imagine you're in an airplane, you're about to take off from Los Angeles, you want to get to New York, and your heading gets changed by three and a half degrees, almost imperceptible looking at a plane, you would not be able to tell that mm-hmm. its heading has changed three and a half degrees. But that's the difference between New York and Washington, D.C. And I promise you those are very different places. (laughs) Yeah. Like, um, I was thinking about this and it comes down to this concept of, I'm thinking about, uh, when I first graduated, you know, I thought I had to go out and prove that I was the smartest person in the room to get a job. That's the wrong approach. And it took me a little while to realize that it's like, you have to realize, yeah, I'm a junior. I don't have that experience. I've got a lot of things I've got to learn and grow. So my first focus would be, where can I go to learn and grow? Where can I go to become that better person? Not, can I get the awesome job where I'm going to be doing awesome features all the time, improving myself? Where can I go where they're going to teach me what I need to do to be that awesome engineer? Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, I think a mistake you're right that I've seen is that people think that they will be evaluated on their knowledge. And if you think about physics or calculus, right, there's the difference between position, velocity, and acceleration. Mm -hmm. Thinking that you are going to be judged purely on your knowledge is thinking that what is most important is just your position, where you are right now. And that static position is often not nearly as important in the beginning of your career as velocity or acceleration. Right. Mm -hmm. If you even if you start out with probably the most knowledge of any of your peers, that static position, if that's not changing, you have low velocity or low acceleration. By the time you get a couple of years out, you're still going to be close to where you are and be massively dwarfed by Mm -hmm. any of your peers who concentrated on the equivalence of of velocity or or acceleration. Speaking of uh, looking out into the future. Angus, what are you excited to play with? Uh, let's say you were starting a project and there was no risk of tech landmines. What technology or technologies would you want to play with? Um, it's actually funny. I kind of just finished or the first phase of rebuilding my entire website, uh, personal website. And that was a fun project just to kind of learn. Um, one of the things I love figuring out is uh, more of a DevOps side to uh, my personal projects and stuff. And one of the things I loved about doing my recent personal site was figuring out Netlify, semantic releasing, and stuff like this that a certain David Gutman, yourself, introduced me to. And the reason I loved it so much was because it made it so much easier and faster to deliver features on it. And that's something I love to figure out is those little like front-end DevOpsy stuff that makes coding easier. <laughs> like it got to the point where I was like, Oh, I'll, I need to, you know, integrate, you know, a headless CMS to this into Gatsby. And I was like, because I had set up all these DevOps stuff, I was like, took, got it done in an hour, which before had like previously taken a couple days to kind of figure out, all right, like connect this, connect this. Now my tests are failing. All right. Now let me set up the, you know, Kubernetes Docker deployment and stuff. You come along and you're like, dude, why don't you just use Netfly? It's a couple buttons and you're in production. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I could have saved myself days from this. Um, so those are some of the things I look for and like love playing with. Actually, but to get to a specific technology that I'd love to learn and play with is GraphQL. Um, mm. I just see a lot of, you know, 
I just see it solving so many pain points for me from the past experience. Um, a few of my startups, like we had mobile apps, different client consumers that all had different API like structures and requests and stuff, but we all use the same endpoint to go find that resource. So, you know, the front end team would go in and be like, Hey, we need to adjust it to, you know, add this field and like hide this field and stuff. And we'd be like, cool, ship to production. Suddenly the mobile app development team is getting up and coming over and yelling at us. Why did you do that? Why did you change that? Well, we need to do the, Oh, we broke, we broke our mobile app. All right. Hot fix time. And then they do the same thing to us. Talk about like, touching oh, a hot God. stove, right? Hmm? So talk about touching a hot stove, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, that's why I'm excited about GraphQL and its ability to like have the client determine the data it needs and how it gets that data. Like that shift of responsibility. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And that's why I want to play with it more. But like, um, other things I'm looking at is something that I've always heard about and haven't quite figured out myself is the backend has gone from monoliths to microservices and they're kind of going back to monoliths apparently. But I love that microservices approach of like, Hey, if this piece really doesn't have anything to do with this part over here, why are we bundling them together and shipping them together and like risking everything breaking? Um, that has been a little bit harder to do on the front end, like trying to make say this react header just live on its own. It doesn't have to know the rest of the page. Well, that doesn't work so easily because now you're dealing with, all right, I've got to like pull in all these different JavaScript bundles. I have to put them in order and all this stuff. And, you know, not always fun to do that when you have to place, all right, this JavaScript for line first, then this JavaScript uh, script tag and keeping them in order. But so like, I'm, I'm kind of excited about Webpack 5 in this whole federation model. Like when they were saying, oh yeah, each page could be its, its own repository and all work together. And I'm like, I'm excited about this idea too. You're going to have to prove it to me because that sounds <laughs> like hell. So <laughs> those are some of the things like I would really love to see like microservices in the front end be one of the big things to come out. And soon as Webpack 5 gets released, I'm going to be playing with trying to save myself some pain because like Rex's current uh, main application on the web, it's kind of grown big in like developing on that, trying to run the server and the client builds and watching it at the same time. Let's just say my computer gets a little warm, a little toasty. <laughs> it's great in the winter, summer. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to just from a distance type at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that wireless keyboard really comes in handy. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that is it for today, mm -hmm. Angus. Man, it's so good hanging out with you. This oh. was fun. Well, thank um, you for having me. Was... Of course. Of course. Yeah. Well, hopefully that was useful to everyone uh, out there listening. I think there was a lot of good things covered, probably useful for career development, how to think about interviews, how to think about contributing to a team. A lot of good stuff there. Thanks. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior.